Hi, and welcome to Forgotten Film Club. We're your hosts, Sarah, Hallie, and John. Hallie and I are friends from the internet who met for the first time in real life in a cabin in the woods in Wisconsin, and somehow it wasn't the plot of a horror film. I know John from college, and Hallie and John have never met. So we're just a bunch of people who like movies, chatting online, and sharing our thoughts with you about films that were forgotten from the 80s, 90s, and aughts that we don't think should be forgotten, but do need a few key improvements. So it's been 23 years since this movie was re- July 21st would have been the 23rd anniversary. So to the listeners, I did see this in theaters, but I swear to God, I am below 40. Um, my 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 sisters just got bored and brought me to the theater because they didn't want to spend time at home. Well, it's PG-13 horror, right? Like this feels very PG-13. Oh. Yeah, I agree. But these are also the same sisters that that brought me to scream when I was six. That is not cool. Ooh, no. Scream Scream has some holy yeah. shit. Yeah, Ghostface was my boogeyman. I skipped yeah. over like con- conjuring up my own boogeyman and I just inserted Ghostface. I'll never look at Jiffy Pop the same way. <laughs> I had a little bit of writer's block, so I did ask ChatGPT to get me started and it hallucinated again. But I I watched this movie right before we did the gift um, just for fun. And I, I will say ChatGPT's rough outline was super helpful when I watched it again this weekend, this past weekend. So it'd be kind of fun to see if you can tell what's me and what's ChatGPT. Oh my God, I can't wait. I, I, it's like 70% me, 30% ChatGPT. <laughs> okay. I feel like that's like, I, I've, like I've played around with ChatGPT now. And I find that it, it does a better job if you tell it, if you micromanage it. Yeah. If you micromanage. Yes, yeah. it's true. And and at a certain point, the micromanaging was too time consuming. So I just said, uh, I'll take it from here. And yeah. I did. So, hey there, fellow thrill seekers and movie buffs. Buckle up because we're about to dive into the spine tingling world of What Lies Beneath, a Robert Zemeckis film from 2000 that'll send shivers down your spine and keep you glued to the edge of your seat. You can't see this, but there's a popcorn emoji. <laughs> And that was from ChatGPT. We love it. So picture this. A gorgeous lakeside house in Vermont, a beautiful family, and one hell of a mystery. Our protagonist, Claire Spencer, played to perfection by the sensational Michelle Pfeiffer, is a former symphony cellist, now an empty nester housewife, dealing with the classic case of the mom blues as her daughter leaves for college. But hold on to your popcorn, folks, because that's just the calm before the storm. From the get-go, Claire starts experiencing some seriously strange stuff in her new empty nest. We're talking eerie visions, creepy knocks, and a general feeling that things ain't quite right. Harrison Ford, yes, the Harrison Ford, is her husband, Dr. Norman Spencer, a super smart scientist who seems way too preoccupied with his work to pay attention to his wife's spooktastic concerns. One day, while going through old papers in the attic, Claire comes upon... Polaroid pictures used to file an insurance claim for a gnarly single car accident she had about a year ago. When she retreats to the garden to have a good cry, she overhears heaving sobs coming from the other side of the fence. She peers through a crack in the fence and sees her distraught new neighbor, Mrs. Fior. They briefly speak, but Mrs. Fior retreats when she hears her husband's car turn into the driveway. Claire's internal alarm bells are ringing louder than a fire truck siren, but Norman's like, chill, babe, it's all in your head. Ugh, husbands, am I right? He begrudgingly agrees to call the department head for Mr. Fuhrer's department at the university where they both work. 
I don't totally get the point of this. Like, will this guy's boss really say, oh, right, Mr. Fjord, our new adjunct, he's a total wife beater. Anyway, this begrudgingly satisfies Claire, but she is concerned enough to bring a welcome basket over the next day. She finds no one home, but she does find a woman's shoe with blood on it sitting in the middle of the porch. That night, Claire sees Mr. Fjord carrying what she thinks is his wife's body to the trunk of his car. She calls Norman over to the window, but by the time he gets there, there is nothing to see. After some more fruitless snooping over at the Fjord residence, Claire comes up to some spook. That's not right. I don't know. I did write that. You can tell where it's me because it's um like words are not right. <laughs> after, after some more fruitless snooping over at the Fjord residence, Claire comes upon something spooky happening in her house. The door opens on its own. A picture frame falls over after having fallen over the same. What the fuck was I trying to say? It's chat GPT. All the mistakes are chat GPT, Sarah. <laughs> it's just really darn, I think. Okay. All right. After some more fruitless snooping over at the Fuel residence, Claire comes home to some spooky happenings in her house. The door opens on its own. A picture frame falls over after having fallen over the night before in the same exact spot. And her dog is really upset about some bad vibes on their dock. He refuses to go into the water to fetch his favorite ball. Claire tries to get the ball on her own, and that's when she sees the ghostly face of a dead woman just below the surface of the water. Claire's scaredy cat dog abandons her, and she's left home alone with that creepy door that has a mind of its own. Back inside, she hears ethereal whispering, and the stereo turns itself on full blast before gently turning itself off again. So of course she goes to see Norman at work, because how could she possibly stay in that house by herself? At work, she sees some super-powered paralytic painkiller that Norman's team is working on, but we don't linger there because she quickly rushes to Norman and tells him all about the crazy shit going on at home. He says he's going to have the police check the house. And, oh, by the way, the psych department head only had great things to say about Mr. Fjord because, of course, he did. The next day, the door is still being weird, and that picture frame finally threw itself off the shelf so aggressively that the glass breaks. Claire carefully cleans up the shards of glass, pops the possessed picture back in its place, and heads over to the Fjord residence yet again. As she is leaving the welcome basket on the doorstep this time, she runs into Mr. Fjord, played by James Ramar. He says he can't talk and that his wife isn't home. He also doesn't answer when Claire asks when his wife will be back. After dinner that night, Claire steps on a shard of glass that she missed from earlier. This leads her to notice a mysterious key in one of the floor grates. Claire retrieves it and slips it into her robe pocket. As she goes upstairs, she notices that her bathtub has filled itself full of steamy water. She pulls the plug and notices the dead woman's face again. That's when Claire starts seeing a psychiatrist. He's pretty chill and open-minded. I don't know if he means this in the figurative inner self sense or if it's in the literal sense, but he tells Claire she should try to contact the ghost and find out what the ghost wants. So Claire and her BFF grab a Ouija board, a bottle of wine, and set up shop. <laughs> what I wrote is a bottle of wine. I'm finishing a class, um, and I had to do two assignments this weekend in addition to this. And, and there's all of these words that are not the right words, but it's like adjacent. <laughs> I think it's amazing. You're doing great. You're doing great. <laughs> yeah. I've never seen you laugh as hard. Oh, okay. All right. <laughs> so Claire and her BFF grab a Ouija board, a bottle of wine, and set up shop in the bathroom with Mrs. Fjord's shoe. 
The candle flickers out and the Ouija board moves without either of them touching it. Then the door slams open, but it's just the dog. Claire makes her BFF promise not to tell her husband about the seance because he already thinks she's nuts. And her BFF promises, but she says that Norman's just worried about her because she had a high-speed single-car accident like a year ago. Fair. Anyway, Claire's computer turns itself on, which Claire does not notice. But she does notice the bathtub filling itself full of steamy water again. This time, the ghost leaves her a note on the fogged-up mirror. It says, you know. Claire rushes downstairs, where she sees her solitaire game loaded on the computer, and underneath the enter your initials prompt, the ghost is typing M-E-F like 30 times. So then Claire tells Norman about everything, including the seance, and he accuses her of staging a nervous breakdown because she's jealous of the amount of attention he's been giving his work. She runs away from him and runs into Mr. Fuhr leaving an event on campus. She takes this opportunity to accuse him of murder in front of God and everybody, and that's when Mrs. Fuhr emerges from the restroom, completely fine. The next day, Claire finds a present from her BFF on her doorstep. It's a book about witchcraft and alchemy. I love this woman who believes her friend to the end. As Claire is about to head inside, Mrs. Fuhr comes over to apologize. She realizes how confusing her conversation with Claire was, but she's really just a young wife who's kind of overwhelmed by how much she loves her husband, and she doesn't want to lose herself in the relationship. And that's the end of that red herring. That night, Claire and Norman go to a fancy dinner party hosted by a big deal university guy. The hostess says she's so happy that Claire is doing okay because she hasn't seen Claire since the night of Norman's reception for the DuPont chair, which was also at her house. We then learn that this was the night of Claire's accident, which it turns out Claire can barely even remember. When she gets back home, Claire grabs the self-destructive picture frame, which contains a newspaper clipping of Norman winning the award they were all celebrating the night of her accident. The picture frame tries one more time to get Claire's attention, and this time it works. Claire removes the back of the picture frame and sees the reverse side of the photo, an article about a missing woman named Madison Elizabeth Frank. Claire asks Norman if he knew Madison, and he gets real mad about it. Claire must have read a lot of Nancy Drew as a kid because she goes full amateur sleuth on this. She calls one of the reporters who covered Madison's disappearance, and he gives her a ton of information. And the next thing you know, Claire's at Madison's mom's house. Madison's mom briefly leaves Claire alone in Madison's room, and Claire takes this opportunity to steal a lock of Madison's hair. I'm not sure why someone would keep a lock of their own hair just chilling on a corkboard in their own room, but thank God for plot reasons, Madison did. Claire takes that shit and uses it to conjure Madison back with the witchy book, making things even more complicated than a Rubik's Cube on steroids. Madison, now inhabiting Claire's body, seduces Norman while eating an apple in what must be some kind of biblical metaphor. Hold on to your seat cushions because this movie ain't gonna let you catch your breath. It turns out Madison and Norman were having an affair. And just as it looks like Madison is going to stab Norman with a letter opener, she's distracted by a vision of Claire coming home and catching them in the act. Yes, it is as trippy as it sounds. Norman pushes Madison Claire off of him, causing her to drop the lock of Madison's hair that she's been tightly gripping this whole time. This breaks the spell. Claire now has total recall of the events of the night of her accident. She saw Madison with Norman in their house and later saw her again at the DuPont chair party. Norman tries to justify his affair with the standard, we were having problems, blah, blah, blah. 
So Claire goes to her BFF's house and the BFF said she actually had seen Norman and Madison together in a little town one weekend shortly before the accident. She never told Claire because she saw Norman dutifully sitting by Claire's side in the hospital. And I guess she thought the affair was water under the bridge at that point. Claire spends the night with her BFF and goes back to Norman in the morning. When she gets home, she finds Norman in the bathtub electrocuted. By some miracle, Norman is not dead and does not even have to be admitted to the hospital. But Claire is not done investigating yet. She asks Norman point blank if he had anything to do with Madison going missing. He says yes in the sense that his behavior was unethical and he drove that woman to become completely unstable, in his words. Claire thinks Madison tried to kill him in the bathtub. Which Norman is not sure is possible because he says they don't even know that Madison is dead. So like probably her ghost couldn't murder him. Just in case, he decides to consult a paranormal psychologist. While he's on the phone, Claire, as Madison, because she's got the lock of hair in her hand again, dies off the dock. Just as she is about to grab a mysterious box from under the water, Norman grabs her and pulls her back to the surface. After that, he burns the braid and tells Claire he believes her. Then they take a little sail, and Claire says they ought to take a day trip and stop in Adamant for lunch. Adamant is the town where Claire's BFF saw Norman with Madison, but Norman claims to be unfamiliar with the town. Thus, he is still lying. While taking a relaxing bath, Claire's robe slips off the hook on the door, and the mysterious key falls out of her pocket. Claire decides to take the key and nose around Adamant. There she sees sterling silver necklaces and boxes in a shop that have the same design as a design she saw underwater by their house. Claire goes back home and retrieves the box from beneath the lake, which she unlocks with the mysterious key. There she finds the necklace that Madison was wearing in her missing person photo. Norman finds Claire about to call the police and claims that Madison killed herself and left a note for Claire to find along with the box. He says he disposed of the box, the letter, and the body to save their marriage and his work. Claire seems to buy this, but she still wants Norman to call the cops so Madison's family can give her a proper burial. Norman pretends to call the cops and then he attacks Claire and paralyzes her with the scary drug his team was working on earlier in the movie. Then he puts her in the bathtub where he intends to drown her just like he drowned Madison. As Norman waits for the water to rise, he notices Claire is wearing Madison's necklace. As he lifts the necklace off of her, Claire suddenly shapeshifts into Madison's lifeless body. This shocks Norman to such an extent that he falls backwards and hits his head on the sink. With Norman incapacitated and unable to continue giving Claire the paralytic drug, she regains enough of her muscle movement to slightly lift the tub stopper with her toes until it breaks off its chain. Luckily, Claire's fingers get just enough movement to use the spray head cord to turn off the knob at its source. Then Claire floats up enough that the movement of her foot pushes the broken tub stopper out of the way. Now, safely out of the water, Claire sees that Norman is missing from the bathroom, though he has left a trail of blood in his wake. Claire pulls her still somewhat paralyzed body to the phone, only to find it disconnected. She grabs a piece of broken mirror to use as a weapon and heads out to look for Norman. She sees his lifeless body at the foot of the stairs. After grabbing the cell phone from its charger on a hall table, she realizes she will have to take the keys from Norman's pocket. Only she realizes too late she's grabbing the keys for the truck and not the car. Upon switching vehicles, she sees Norman's shadow in the entryway window. So I guess he wasn't so lifeless after all. Now, this movie was filmed in 1999, so a really important plot point is that Claire will not have cell service until she gets to the middle of this super long bridge. In the middle of the bridge, Claire stops to call 911. 
Just as she makes the call, Norman breaks the windshield and tries to strangle her from the bed of the truck. Claire drives off the bridge right at the exact place where Norman has dumped Madison's body. The accident dislodges Madison from her final resting place and her corpse reanimates just long enough to drown Norman while Claire flees. Cut to the final scene of the movie where Claire places a single rose on Madison's grave. We don't see what happens to Norman's body because who the fuck cares? Best ending ever. That ending was you. It was. <laughs> that ending was you. I know all the moments, Chad GPT, because it was so jarring because it would be like, Hold on to your popcorn, mother <laughs> ladies. Turn <laughs> out like a Rubik's Cube on fire. It was so ridiculous. I had to keep some of it in. It's it's kind of funny because like I've I've you know, Chat GPT has has like spit some stuff out at me that's like what the hell. And then I actually just put in the directive, like, write this better. And then it and then it like stops that. I think I used the term like like use better prose. Ooh. And, it, and it responds it, to shame. Oh my yeah. god! <laughs> so I never shame Chat GPT because when it becomes sentient, I want it to remember that we are friends. But I also try not to um, personalize it. So I don't use like I try not to use pronouns like you. I just I try to say things like "Hi Chat GPT, please do da 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 da," and then I always say thanks just in case. I love this. We could have a whole episode about ChatGPT, not even doing the ChatGPT that we did, you and me, Sarah, but <laughs> we're just talking about it like this. This movie was a doozy. So it's really, yeah. It, now it's, I sound like ChatGPT. It was a doozy. What's really funny is that when you brought up, like, you know, this movie was filmed in 1999. So it's, you know, there was a thing that happened where Claire's cell phone um, stopped working halfway or could only start working halfway across a bridge. That's the Lake Champlain Bridge. Um, and it's it's not, the bridge was demolished in 2009 and replaced with a better one. Um, but still in that area, um, north of Ticonderoga in Vermont, um, you 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 lose cell reception, like losing cell reception halfway across a bridge. That's just something that happens in in upstate in, in upstate New York and Vermont. And yeah, it's spotty, it's spotty as fuck. That funny. is so weird. Yeah, people that yeah, if you're if you live in a city, you don't you don't understand what upstate rural New York is like. <laughs> we're still in, we're still 20 years ago with cell service. So that plot point can still completely work in in a remake today. Thank you for calling me out for the coastal elite that I am. I was unaware. <laughs> City folk just don't understand. So Sarah Kenochin, um, who is a documentarian who won two Academy Awards for Marjo in 1973 and Thoth in 2002, turned a personal story about uh, two um, retirement age people, a couple, experiencing a haunting by benevolent spirits. Um, and then she, when she optioned it, the studio brought in Clark Gregg, you know, who you might know from, um, Phil, he played Phil Coulson in all the Marvel Cinematic Universe films, but um, he rewrote it to be like um, the thriller that we have now. It got in front of Steven Spielberg, who was, in, who was enchanted by it. But he didn't have time to make it, so he brought it over to. So he presented it to Robert Zemeckis, um, who then got Harrison. For who then got Harrison Ford involved. Harrison Ford was the first one that was cast. Michelle Pfeiffer and Harrison Ford were his first and only choices for these characters. And this was the and this was the script that Harrison Ford fell in love with and really wanted to do. Even though he's such like he's a villain, but he's, you know, like he's kind of second banana to Michelle Pfeiffer in my opinion. 
So my question is, does this movie work if Harrison Ford is not Norman Spencer? Like just on the script alone, if you read the script, would you see this twist coming? Well, I mean, I feel like, okay, um, they're not elderly in this movie, but they are kind of coastal, like they are kind of living a coastal grandma lifestyle. Yeah. Um, And I feel like on the page, if I was like, okay, coastal grandma couple, um, he teaches at a, at a local, at a, at a Vermont university and he has an affair. I, I would never think like, this is Harrison Ford. Yeah. I totally agree with you. I don't think that, I think a lot of actors could do this role. Yeah. No, I mean, like I would, I think that if it was not Harrison Ford and I watched it as an adult, I probably would have believed like whatever as the, you know, 11, I watched it on TV. So it must've been 11 or something when I saw it. But I think if I was just watching this movie as an adult, I would be like, okay, but so her husband's the killer, right? Like her husband killed this girl and now they're getting haunted because of it. Oh, I see. I mean, honestly, I think, well, this is the, the casting in this. Because I, I think they really tried to do that intertext, like that intertextuality of Harrison Ford, where he had never really played a villain before. So I think that that's what they were banking on. Because I think that we were, I think like watching it as as you know as a child, and then you know the two teenage girls that were my sisters, um, they were all surprised. I think we were all surprised that Harrison Ford was you know was the bad guy, and I think that's what they wanted with his casting was they wanted it to be a surprise that he was a bad guy. But I think that they tipped they tipped their hat too early and that like once, like once you find out that he had an affair with her, with the girl, it's like, okay, you don't like him anymore. Exactly. That was the thing. Cause I actually think I was kind of under their spell when the movie started where I was like, Oh wow. Like they're hot. They're so hot together. And like, they're just so nineties, perfect hot where like, I just was like, this is so it. Have it, have either of you read the play, um, dial M for murder? Mm-hmm. It has a lot of dial M for murder vibes. I think that I feel like like Clark Gregg, the the screen the screen play writer. I feel like he just took a bunch like five or six Hitchcock movies and threw them into yeah. a blender and added a, and added a ghost. Yeah, because it, it feels there's a little bit of like a damsel in distress quality about her. There's a little bit of like oh I oh I just want my husband to be okay and love what we're doing. Yeah. There's a little bit of that in the beginning, which you need. Yeah. And then, yeah, and then there's, and then like there's vertigo, like there's a bunch of homages to vertigo, like the the stuff in the water and all the mirrors and the doppelganger, the blonde doppelgangers. Right. Um, and then you have Marnie, which you know where a woman, you know, through trauma dissociates, and she can't remember a traumatic event, and it suddenly starts to come yeah. back to her. We've got rear window with the binoculars. Yes, rear window with the yeah, looking at the neighbor, looking at the red herring neighbors. Yep. Um, yeah, you have a whole, bu- yeah, they even have like psycho stuff in here with like the, the stuff in the bathtub and the visuals and, um, and also the fact that Alan, like, um, the composer Alan Silvestri, um, was told like pretty much just do North by Northwest as the, as the score. And it's kind of funny because I thought like, you know, it's the parts of this movie that, that the parts of this movie that don't work, like it, it wants to be a Hitchcock movie so badly with suspense, um, but Hitchcock never worked, never did any ghost movies or supernatural movies. I will so, say that red herring, the rear window red herring, that there's like 17,000 versions of rear window and I will watch every single one of them. So if they hadn't gotten James Ramar out of the way so quickly, if they had taken that like to the middle of the third act, I would have 
given Harrison Ford benefit of the doubt a lot longer. Yeah. Yeah. The Miranda Otto, the Miranda Otto character, the her, her next door neighbor. Like you, like I remember being a kid, like so like after she explained what was going on, it's like, so why was she so upset? And then years later, it's like, okay, I, I think I'm I'm gonna understand her now that now that I'm older and have more context. And to this day, I still don't understand her character. That that whole scene just threw me off. That was the one scene in the movie where I was like, <laughs> wait, what? It's like no human. That's hysterical being because she was so in love with her husband. I mean, I don't get that. Yeah, and she was just like crying in her backyard and like saying like I don't even know you and like this fence is so tall and it's just it also her husband's a dick. Oh yeah, yeah, totally. I dick. love James Ramar. He can really do no wrong in my book. <laughs> I, I I think it's purely like a a lust thing because I loved him in the Warriors. I loved him in Sex in the City where he's also a dick and he's a dick in the Warriors too. But I'm kind of like, yeah, I don't know. I'd hang That's with what that I know. He was Richard on Sex in the City, wasn't he? Uh, so you kind of have like a Theo James thing. Like he was such a dick in the White Lotus season two, but it's like, you just can't stop. Like he's just wonderful and beautiful. I don't yeah. know if it's White Lotus season two, Sarah. No, I I did watch that. I just don't remember who, I don't know who Theo James Theo James, is. Theo James was like the dark triad, like the, Cameron, like the dark triad business guy that was trying to, um. Do I remember this show? Wow, I've had a, yeah, a lot going to, on lately. One to sleep and there's the condom in the Oh, couch. such a dick. But so yeah. very attractive. Very. <laughs> beautiful. Actually, something new that I noticed this time around was how naturalistic uh, Michelle Pfeiffer is yes. in this. Like, she's just like just so many little mannerisms like when she first pets the dog at the beginning and she just like like wipes like just kind of like unconsciously just like wipe, wipes her hands off her blouse and like there's just she just has so many like little nuances and movements and um yeah she's just kind of you kind of feel like she's kind of goofy and then she gets but you know but then when she gets alone with her husband with Harrison Ford it's you know, she's also like a very sexual, like she's also a very sexual woman too. This is one of the most well-rounded female characters I have ever seen in my life. And I love her so much because she is so vulnerable and so yes. fragile that you almost just want to hug her, but she's also really confident and sexy. <laughs> and even when it's to the point of not trusting her own perception, she's like, okay, something kicks in and I'm going to trust my gut and I'm going to fight for my life and I'm going to do so successfully. She was never a 90s badass in this. She was just like a regular person that, you know, reacted in the appropriate way that a person like her would react. Well, and I like that they also planted early on her going through those photos, the the memory of, wow, she was, she was at Juilliard. She had this whole other life. There was something... I think she did get caught up a little bit, though, in this, like, sexy rich man saving her. Yeah, it, because they were busy. It looks like her wedding photo, the wedding photos that they edited together of her and Harrison Ford were from the 80s. Totally. And she was 42 in this movie, so that means that she would have been, like, in 82, she would have been, and she would have been, like, a pretty young bride. Like, so she had, like, a young daughter. Well, and they also say when they're at that dinner thing with the other couple that they met and then he he met her at the at a concert and they were married three months later. Right. And this is why we should pay female artists so you don't wind up with no. a psycho killer husband because Literally you can't feed was, your child. It felt I mean, very it, um it felt very fatal attraction-y with like in reverse. Like I said, they tipped they they overestimated Harrison Ford being likable and they tipped. They did. 
they tip their hat too early. Yeah, exactly. You're so right, John, with once mm. you knew he had the affair, I was like, oh, he killed this woman. Yeah. Is it less than two hours? I didn't really. No, it's that. a little, it's a little bit over two hours. Yeah, over I moved so totally. fast. I'm so glad you brought that up because I was going to make a comment about the time of the movie because I, at first when it started, I was like, oh, wow, this is long for what this is. And it didn't feel long. Yeah, I really appreciated that. I think that was a testament to the direction and that, and that you have these two powerhouse actors in it that were just like icons icons at that time weird question that i had maybe i'm just maybe i just blacked out for a second when it was happening but okay she sees the red herring neighbor come out with something wrapped in a bag what was in the bag her things remember he they get back together because she's she's fled because she's losing herself in the relationship and it's overwhelming and he's gonna let her go but he's decided to transport her things in a giant ass trash bag and and take it to her home her mother's home yeah that red herring they should have done more with that red herring they should have kept that going longer well because at first what i do appreciate was in the building of the suspense you do question her sanity for a minute when she's seeing something but then or just i feel like in the beginning we see things a lot from her perspective more than we do later right. i think once the movie goes on we actually zoom out a little bit and just see it as a whole like i feel like she should have been presented as a little bit more of a possible unreliable narrative like is that the totally. right because it's because like you know it i think it also tips its hat too early that okay this ghost story is true there is a ghost mm-hmm. i feel like they should have kind of kept that a little bit like somehow kept that a little bit more in the dark like kept us in the dark about like okay is she kind of losing it or you know is, is there something actually going on here um but they you know they were showing yeah like once they showed her reflection in the water it's like okay there's there's definitely a ghost or i think that that's, that's what they were trying to do like when she had the door when she was like pushing the door and the picture frame and the picture frame fell i think you're supposed to think think like okay maybe you know her doing that to the door knocked the picture frame off off the table and that's why um, but yeah, I feel like it's, you knew that it was a, you knew that it was supernatural too early on. I kind of liked knowing that though. I, I don't know. I like a ghost story where we know it's a ghost. I guess I, maybe it's my social work roots, but I find it way less scary if it's like a mental health thing. Cause I'm like, well, there's usually some kind of treatment for that. Like a fucking ghost. What are we going to do with a ghost? That is uncharted territory. So that always freaks me out every time in like a really good way. What do you guys think about the scene with, speaking of the mental health turn of it, what do you all think about the scene with the psychologist? <sighs> do you handled it well? Do you think he handled it in a... I, I mean, I think he would have been a, a better therapist if this was stretched out a little bit more. But the fact that, like, literally, like, pretty much you saw their entire session on camera. Like, yeah. like the session took place in real time and it was not very long before, you know, they pretty much introduced themselves. And then by the end of five minutes, it's like, you know, buy a Ouija board. Oh, sorry, go on. Well, he didn't bother me in the sense that he didn't do anything harmful. My no. most, I, the thing that I hate most on like television representations of mental health are people doing things that are just like so actively wrong. And then the general public is like, oh, that's what I should be looking for in a therapist. So I appreciated that this guy was not that. Yeah. But yeah, I got lost with the Ouija board. Well, no, but the thing is, like, you know, it's because you know, I'm a, um, I guess for listeners that are, this is the first episode. Like, I'm, a, I'm a therapist in my, in my 
in my real life. Um, and you know, if somebody comes in with a belief system, you know, somebody believes in ghosts and and somebody believes in spirits, you know, I'm not going to I'm not going to tell them like, you know, I don't believe that or <laughs> podcast. Yeah, well, that's why that's why I wanted to ask the two of you because you guys yeah. have the social. Yeah, work it's like of- I'm not going to I'm not going to say I'm not going to you know, state what my belief system is. I'm not going to, like, I'm going to try to help them solve their problem within the context of their belief system, you know? And I feel like, you know, if I was working with Claire and it's, you know, and she's like very disturbed by these things in her house, you know, I might start to encourage her to, you know, try to figure this problem out, you know, with the, like from the framework, from the, from this, from her point of view, like, okay, like you know what you know, what would it be like to commune with this like the spirit that's haunting you like because in my in the back of my head I would I would be thinking like you know the spirit is just kind of a is just kind of a manifestation of especially since the fact that you know it looks like Claire I would think like okay so this spirit is probably some manifestation of you know Claire's inner insecurities and you know to talk to this ghost is is to talk to herself. Um, this is also after you made sure there wasn't some brain exactly. tumor thing like medical after, first. After I rule out psychosis and mania and uh, medical reasons, um, yeah, I would try to work within the framework. Like maybe I wouldn't recommend like you know get a Ouija board, but I might I might a- I might ask her like, okay, so how would you like you know how would you want to communicate with the spirit? Yeah, that seems like a question that would get a lot that that would get a lot you get a lot from the person of how would you go about it if you were going to. I'll also just editorialize real quick because you made a beautiful statement that I'm not going to edit, John, but I do want listeners to know the chuckle was because I wrote podcast is real life too in the chat and not because you were chuckling at your previous statement. So my apologies. (laughs) Thank you. Uh, Thank you for, yeah. Um, But I do appreciate the fireballs in his office. That was, that was definitely like whoever, um, one of the screenwriters, um, definitely took that from some real life experience in the therapist's office. Um, and DBT, um, like we actually, like I run a DBT group. And one of the things that I do with the group is um, to kind of ground themselves or to or to kind of um, um, short, like kind of short circuit their fight or flight response um, is to um, suck on sour candy or suck on a fireball. Really? Mm-hmm. Yep. So that is, yeah, that's, that's, that that's was a real thing. Then that it's, it's, that's a real thing to get your brain focused on something else. Mm-hmm. So I don't know, like he, he did offer it pretty like quickly to her, I guess it was just like to maybe like, like get her. Yeah. Like you said, like get her distracted on something else, like kind of for maybe like, like have her focus away from her nerves. I thought that was super astute because I don't always like realize personally that I'm in a amygdala hijack until somebody else is like, let's do box breathing or something like that. I think I cover it pretty well. And I think she's a little bit like that. There's still a lot of agitation. So when he pulled out the fireballs, I was like, this screenwriter went to therapy, (laughs) right? Exactly. Yeah, I I do appreciate that this is a 90s movie that has a favorable viewpoint on mental health treatment. So that was nice to have like the therapist to be like the you know, one of the people that was actually listening to her. And the fact that it was an actual trained therapist and not a family medical doctor prescribing antipsychotics or well, that anything I'm of that nature. That's where I thought it was going to go. 
Because I was like, ooh, he makes the joke about committing her. He's like, I have to do three sessions before I commit somebody. That's a joke. Like, I liked that he did the joke, but I was like, oh, God, we're going to get meds now. It's going to be, and I'm glad we didn't go there. Yeah, like, but the Valium, though, it's like, oh, okay. So she takes Valium to go, she, take, she takes Valium to go to sleep every night. Right, exactly. Yeah. Well, so, yeah, she was in this horrible car accident and nobody really talks about it except to ex- right. hint that they expect her to just have a total breakdown at any given point in time. Right. And, uh, yeah. 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 And uh, you kind of get the sense like, you know, when, because when it first starts out, you kind of think like, okay, her biggest problem is her daughter and, and she lives in this beautiful manicured, like this perfect world. Um, but then it's like, oh, she's actually, she's actually like, she actually has a lot going on you know, that has nothing to do with her daughter. Um, and she's kind of being repressed. Like you, you kind of find, like you kind of find ways like throughout like little ways throughout the movie that Norman, that Norman is kind of a heavy hand on her. Absolutely. Yeah. He's a little controlling. Yes. He's very infantilizing to her, which is, is something that's annoying to watch. And yes. Yes, and I, and I think the power difference differential. Like at first, I thought like, okay, this isn't this is kind of '90s casting in their in their age difference. Um, you know, he's 16 years older than Michelle. Like he's 16 years older than she than she is. But I also, like I I I do think that that was intentional, and also creating a little bit more of that power imbalance. Yeah, I think it was very much intentional for him to be older. Yes, it, it would have been a different movie if he had been the same age or younger. It has shades of she had the starving artist lifestyle. She had some success and she was a single mom and then meets this doctor. And now she lives in this coastal high society. Yes. I think it's totally there. I think it's her life is painted in the first few scenes to be this beautiful, idyllic thing yeah. i also want to know how he faked that electrocution because the paramedics were like hey like something's not quite right here but you don't need to go to the it's hospital like, it's, and it's like why were you but like any paramedic would be like you know but it was a blow dryer man like what were you doing with a blow dryer in the in the in the shower yeah no i know it doesn't make sense but i but they did say like hey like your blood pressure is high or your yeah. You're kind of like there were a few like vitals that seemed a little off. So I wondered if he had done something to kind of skew that, but not enough to actually. I don't know. I'm getting too lost yeah. in the weeds. But. No, I, I agree because because he makes that comment when he's trying to drown her at the end of like, oh, it's cold, isn't it? It was cold when I was sitting there waiting for you to come back to find me. And I was like, oh my God, did he do, was he fine? Was he just like closing his eyes in there? Probably. Maybe sitting in cold water for hours and hours fucked up his vitals. Yeah, he also had the he also had access to all those chemicals too. When she is freaked out and she goes to the lab and they're showing the rats with the, you know, almost like chloroform, you know, that just I knew that was a plant for later, but it looked so bizarre that like she just walked into this lab space and no one was acknowledging her. The fact that that is a jump cut to a tech holding a rat and explaining the um, medicine or whatever it is that they're experimenting with is so jarring. It's not, it feels like it's not interstitial and they didn't leave her into it. You do not see it through the eyes of the protagonist. And I think they could have still given us that information in a way that didn't feel so much like this is going to come up later. You know, if he had explained, if he had explained to her what it was that he did, to her, what he did to her in, in the bathtub, it, because I feel like it's not too hard to explain, like it's a nerve agent, 
or whatever. It's a set, it's a sedative that, you know, you're completely aware of what's going on and you can't move. That is so horrifically terrifying. Does that exist? Someone who's in the medical like, field. I'm, like a full body nerve block. Oh my like God. A, I don't get it. Like, and it why also, would you need that? But you're right, Sarah, that jump cut was so jarring because it just, right. in, I'm not even someone who's involved with science in any capacity, but I know that if I walk into a lab, even if I was married to the guy who was directing the project, they'd be like, what are you doing here? Uh, hi. Oh, do you need to come in? Oh, uh, what? Uh, no, he's back there. Uh, what? And they were just like feeding the pet poison to the rat. Hi. It was they, so weird. They could, yeah, they didn't. They, that was too. That was too. Um, a, a bit too. Um, Chekhov gunny. Why do you think this movie is forgotten? Because we just did Hard Rain. Yeah. There were some good bones, but it was kind of a clusterfuck. This yeah. feels really solid, even totally. though it's derivative. I I don't really think that I would change much now that I know cell phones still don't work on bridges. So Robert Zemeckis has always been has always been kind of known as. Um, he loves his technology. Um, and in this case, like, you know, he want, he really wanted to make a Hitchcock movie if Hitchcock had had um, access to CGI. And I think that's like some of the criticism that I read from like the old, like from the older movie critics. It's like the the CGI, like they, they didn't, um, I don't think they, I don't think they liked how innovative he was trying to be. Um, I mean, maybe it's forgotten because it, none of these, the, these two actors, well, ugh, no. I think, I don't know if it's what you were going to say, Hallie, but it does actually pale in comparison to most of their films, right? When you think of Harrison right. Ford movies, Michelle Pfeiffer movies, this is very low on the list because they have so many other cultural touchstones. Yes. Right. Like, and like, you know, like I'm thinking of The Fugitive. I, and this, because this, this is post-Fugitive. Um, and to me, that was like the the coolest Harrison Ford movie to me that's the when I think of Harrison Ford I think of the fugitive I didn't kill my wife that's an amazing movie I don't care. amazing movie I don't care and that's not a forgotten movie so why you know so why is this one more I think I've heard somebody say that this movie is like a high budget lifetime movie that is bullshit because I watched a, light, a lot of Lifetime movies and the writing is way worse than this. And I think Lifetime movies are very melodramatic. The stakes yeah. are so high in ways that even though they're usually very dark circumstances, somehow feel inappropriately high for the circumstances. And this movie is not, What Lies Beneath is not melodramatic. This movie does have a strong visual identity. Um. But like, is there really like a big iconic scene? I don't think so. The only thing I can think of is the only memory in when this was in when this came out that I actually do remember was I remember seeing trailers for this movie in the movie theater, and I remember the her hand on the clawfoot tub. Mm. This is what I remember. I think I'm, it's on the poster. It's yeah. on the poster. I think to, to like, but you set up this gorgeous clawfoot tub, and you know it's that's kind of Chekhov's gunny too. But you know that it's going to be featured this gorgeous clawfoot tub. So that's like the vision I have of this movie. Right. Maybe it's homage to Hitchcock. I think it kind of sacrificed, like trying to really define, like real, tr trying to really develop its own identity mm. and, and having so much homage. I think that's a good point. Because, you know, because to me, this straddles horror and thriller. 
I, I'm kind of my my problem with it is I'm trying to figure out the where I classify it. It's kind of both to me. What do you it guys? It feels like domestic suspense to me is the genre I would put it in. Even though there's supernatural elements, I would go first to domestic suspense. I, I just don't think that there's a lot of ambiguity in it. Like I like I think that the best movies um often have a lot to debate about afterwards, mm. a lot to discuss afterwards, and we kind of like it's kind of a neat bow. Um, you know, we know, we know that there's a ghost. We know who was a bad guy. We know, yeah, we know who we were rooting for the entire time. Um, yeah, and I and I, I don't know. I I feel like if there it have if the ending had been a little bit more ambiguous, like it was a, such a, a neat ending of, okay, they they landed on top of they landed on top of um of Madison's car, and the boat impaled the the top of the car, and Madison's corpse floated up and grabbed Norman, and brought him back down to, into the depths. It's like it's just. I do love on that note, I mean, it's the, the CGI, take your point, sometimes it works, sometimes it doesn't. But speaking of Madison, I love that she is a character that I believe is real. And I feel yeah. like she's flawed, but she's not um, as scandalous as the reporter that Claire speaks to on the phone sort of implies that she is. We get a little bit of her character from her mother. We learn how smart and intellectual she is. And especially given that this was filmed in 1999. I liked that it didn't victim blame. I liked that it was really clear who the bad guy was and it didn't pit women against women, right? They, they worked together to get her away, to get Madison, who you could look at it as somebody who kind of scorned Claire, is working with Claire to get her away from a really evil person. Right, that Madison saves her. Yes, but Madison also, she's kind of controlled by the, by kind of like the, the conceits of like the of the hunt house structure like she can never be you know, for whatever reason she can never be direct she always has to be vague um like you know putting the mef 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 she could type but she couldn't say like norman killed me well maybe um, there was i was gonna say like there, there might have been a character limit, like but that's a, not the case yeah like there's a rule of like you know she wrote in the mirror like you know instead of saying like you know you have amnesia Shit, what a big plot hole that I like didn't even pick up on. All right, John, that's a great case for why this movie needed a little more work. You're that's such a yeah, that's such, that's right. Not that you have completely you have no memory of this. I, that's the point. Yeah, yeah. That's what to me still doesn't make sense. So she has amnesia, she doesn't remember the accident until later. It's like they again, they were trying to do that Marnie thing where it's like the trauma makes you um, like, you know, the traumatic event gives you selective amnesia. Um, it's just, and then she like remembers and it's just, I don't know. I feel like that kind of robbed her a little bit of her agency. Totally. Yeah. If you, if you, especially putting it in those terms, I just also, I rolled my eyes almost in the back of my head, like to the back of my skull when he was like, are you doing this? Cause you're mad at me. Is it because I work too much and that I'm so good at my job? No. Um, we haven't touched upon um, Diana Scarwood, her character. Um, she played. Um, she played the best. She played the best friend. Um, Jody. She played Jody. Oh, I loved her. We need her do also so, for any listeners. The minute she came on screen, I was like, "Oh my god, it's Christina!" Exactly. <laughs> <laughs> Who is Christina? No more wire hangers. Sarah. No more wire hangers. I've never seen that. It looks so oh, upsetting. I know. Okay, but you, you Sarah, we're gonna watch it. 
please don't make us watch that. That is definitely not forgotten. But um, yeah, just you, you've probably heard of the wire hangers scene. Though. Oh, yes, I have. Okay, so I get it. So she's Christina. Christina. Okay. Like, I feel like I've met a lot of Jodies. Mm-hmm. Um, like her, like her mannerisms. Um, you know, like I got um, what was it? Do you want it when she was talking about her new car? Do you think? I um, mean, want to go with me to pick up some guys? Mm-hmm. It's or it's like that's the point of alimony. You lose the guy, you get a car. Like I just loved her delivery. Like she was a very like for a best friend character. Um, she didn't feel very stopped. I I we gotta talk. We gotta talk about her confession. <sighs> What do we think? Like, I don't mean what do we think? Like, is she right. lying or something? I'm saying like, whew, like, that's a big thing to drop on somebody. Yeah. I don't know what I would do in her situation if if my best friend, and I, if I saw my, my best friend's husband having an affair, and then my best friend got into a car accident, and then she has amnesia about it. I feel, yeah, I feel like if somebody has amnesia about a traumatic event, I'm not going to be the one like, remember? I agree. <laughs> I agree. I think she did the thing that I would have done too. I think yeah. I think I would have been planning to tell her. And then I think if she had gotten into a car accident and then this happened, I, I don't know if I'd be able to. Totally. And plus, he looked like a stand-up guy at that point. It, it reads like, oh, he made a mistake. He made a He's recommitted mistake. to her. She doesn't yeah. remember it. Why would you bring that up? Yeah, I totally agree. So improving this movie in a remake, do we like so we agree that the amnesia thing should go somehow? Somehow. I think the amnesia, it's just not written out enough. It needs to be that was a little confusing. Yeah. I and, I don't hate that so much as like I'm fine if it goes, but now I'm really stuck on like the rules of madison's interaction with the living and like why can she write certain words and not others like that that's driving me crazy oh that's tough because again like i think it's like that's where the movie are tipping too much into the supernatural i think it's one of its weaknesses honestly the thriller dynamic between between harrison ford and michelle pfeiffer that's the real selling point of the movie that's the real like i feel like that's the centerpiece of this like that's why i feel like if the if 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 they weren't involved in this, this mo- I don't think this movie would have been remembered at all, honestly. Totally. I, I love the supernatural element, and I like the concept of a benevolent ghost who doesn't seem benevolent at first. But I think if if she got like increasingly powerful somehow, right. the more Claire connected with her, like maybe she's not manifested or like she doesn't have any ability to type or anything like that until like the braid comes into play and it becomes more evident what's really going on. So yeah, maybe if it was, I, I'm fine with like a picture frame falling over the door. Like if it's just kind of like windish things, then that works but, for me. But not her using the computer. Right. It crossed a line. They're writing on the glass. You're right. It crossed a line. She's like doing too many tactile things at that point without yeah. being manifested. Yeah. At that point, I'm just like, whenever that happens in the movie, I'm just thinking about like this ghost woman, like running around the house, like, like a cat, just like knocking over picture yeah. frames and, and messing around with shit. And it's like, just trying to get this woman, like all these little tiny hints, like to get this living woman. Yeah, like, like, why are you being coy? Yeah, like you you knocked her bathrobe off the off the off the hook because she forgot that she had her key in the bathrobe. It's just at that point I thought that was a little silly. It's like okay, this ghost is kind of like a cat. I think it it seems like the writers meant for it to be that she was gaining more power as the movie went on. Yeah. But you're right that it it, it got convoluted because 
it didn't escalate in the proper direction all the way. I don't think. I think that the first manifestation of her should have been at the like at the very very end. Facially, you mean? Totally, I agree. Yeah, yeah, because it's like by the time that you finally get to her, you know, her ghost form, it's like okay, I've seen you throughout the movie now. Like, well, I, I would say not the very end because it does work really well when she's wearing the necklace and other physical link to Madison. Right. Already, she's already conjured, that's, and then they kind of shape shift into one another. If that had been the first appearance, like, oh, holy shit, you know? Right. Yeah. Yeah. You're right. You're right. Because that's actually the most iconic scene of the movie, I think. Because that was iconic enough to be parodied in a scary movie. The the one in the bathtub or the one in the Adam and Eve scene? Yeah, the one. Oh, no, the one in the um the one in um where she's wearing the red dress. Yeah. And she says, I think she might be suspecting something. And then your wife. That scene was really hot though. It was. It was hot. This is this is definitely one of the the, one of these movies where I'm gay but not blind. (laughs) Right. No, I get it. I love it. I'm giving up blind. Yeah. <laughs> I see that. I see what's happening here. I see. <sighs> so casting. I know we gotta cast this Okay. So I feel like we need to keep the age difference intact. And I'm thinking of two I of two iconic actors that have never worked together that are icons of their era, icons of different like of their respective eras that are just electric on screen together. And so Michelle Pfeiffer was 42, 16 years younger than Harrison Ford. Um, What about Natalie Portman, who is the same age as Michelle Pfeiffer, um, who is now 42 herself, and George Clooney, who is 20 years old. Oh, so good. Oh, shit. I like don't even want to share mine now. That is so fucking good, John. Because it's George Clooney also has the also has the Harrison Ford factor, yeah. never having played a villain really. Um, oh, I love that he's so dreamy. Yeah, and I feel like they'd also be kind of be a hot couple too. Oh yeah. wow, yeah. Because you also I think have to keep the ages right. It can't be just any age with that age difference. It can't yeah. be any age plus or minus sixteen. I like that it's really in that world of older man. Younger, but not creepy younger woman. Yes. I'm so curious of what yours were there, Sarah. Continuing with playing against type. And I don't know if it's because he was in The Gift, but I put Keanu Reeves in the Harrison Ford role and Mila Kunis in the Michelle Pfeiffer role. Ooh, that's, I I like that. I like that a lot too. I was thinking Carrie Mulligan, but then for a man, I couldn't, George Clooney is just so good that I can't, that's so what it is. Yeah, like it's so hard to find an icon as big I, as Harrison Ford. I mean, I'm thinking like doc, like Doctor McDreamy, Patrick Dempsey, but like Patrick Dempsey feels right. Oh, that's so good. That you know, so good. Yes, Patrick, really someone who's like really attractive conventionally and smart, and I don't know. I feel like yeah, Patrick. De- I'm gonna say Patrick Dempsey. And then I'm going to say, oh, no, um, what's her name? This is just coming into my mind now. Ruth Wilson. Oh, okay. Oh, I don't know who that is. Come on. Ruth Wilson. Um, and What's her deal? She was in this show called The Affair on Showtime with oh. Dominic West. All right. What about The Fewers? Oh, wow. That's a. They're just such a. I feel like they should be weirder. <laughs> really? I feel like, okay, I, I wanted them. 
to be kinds of like undertones of weird, but seemingly super conventional and conventionally attractive, oh. which is why I went with Bill Skarsgård as Mr. Fewer and Ooh. Davey Edgar Jones as Mrs. Fewer, kind of ingenue. Oh, okay. No, Skarsgård is always good. Skarsgård, it always plays like great between weird and sexy. So who I had for the, for the Fewers were Paul Dano and Zoe Kazan. Oh, damn, that's good. That's oh it. my god! Oh my god! That's that's so good. <laughs> I feel like I would so believe that. I feel like they in the rewrite there should also be a a, a bit like like I like I said they should extend that red herring and yeah. draw more parallels like you know Claire, um you know kind of relating to her a bit more, um kind of paralleling how Madison is trying to help her out. Yeah. Um, like women helping each other. And um, there maybe should have should have actually been a, something problematic in that in the fear relationship. I agree. I I think it was total. Yeah, I think there sh- there should have been something that was weird. Yeah, yeah, like something that was an actual issue, but not like a murder issue. What about the best friend? Um, this was the hardest for me. I don't want to go first. Well, she she's just so like I said I feel like she was actually almost a scene stealer like she was just I don't know I feel I just feel like she was just so charismatic well the person I thought of I was afraid was too big like would be too much of a scene stealer compared to Kristen Bell I could see her playing off of Mila Kunis or Natalie Portman I I had one that I think feels more right which is Juliette Lewis (gasps) oh yeah I love her but she's She's so much, I guess she'd be an older best friend. Oh, because then I'm going to give you another one that would be so crazy because this would change the dynamic. Frances McDormand. <laughs> an older woman best friend. An I like older woman best friend. <laughs> like, I honestly, love Juliette Lewis. I actually think that's really solid casting. She is 50. Okay. But, you know, and Mila, Mila Kunis is like 40. Yeah. Natalie Portman's a little older than that. Um, well, I cast Kiki Palmer as a the therapist because we had to get her in here. I had Peter Krause, who was the, one of the dads on Parenthood. I don't know. Just like it would be like a different, like almost like more of like a, a different presence, but someone who, you know, would be really understanding. And Did anybody recast Mrs. DuPont chair host? No. Oh, that can, oh, that can be. Um, oh, my God. What was her name? Um, Mrs. Sprout's actress from Harry Potter. I cast Jeannie Berlin because I'm a big fan girl. The Forgotten Film Club podcast is a Jeannie Berlin hype club. Hype squad. Yes. And I didn't hear back on my letter to Lori Jones, but yeah, I'm not giving up. No, we don't (laughs) give up. Um, And then my last recasting is is Madison, but I just picked somebody who looks like Mila Kunis. So I'd like to hear. Kira Knightley. Oh, that's excellent. <laughs> Damn, sold. Oh, it works. It works, for, Portman? it works. For, yeah. We got to go with that casting. Yeah, I can't. I can't dispute that. Because there's also just this ethereal quality of her that would be so perfect just in that kind of a thing. I really do love this movie. I I, yeah. I feel like we got to pick a shittier one or something. So I actually have more notes. I kind of just like don't want to change anything. I think it's a classic. I think it's it's one of those movies where it's like, like you know when you're on TCM, and you see a movie with like huge names. Like I didn't know that Catherine Hepburn and and Clark Gable were in a movie together, 
And then you watch it and it's like, how is this not remembered more? This is like really good. Yeah. Um, I feel like like what lies beneath is kind of like that. It's it's good, it's entertaining. It just has some things that prevents it from being one of the greats. That's it for Forgotten Film Club. Join us next month as we discuss the 1994 romantic comedy Only You, starring Robert Downey Jr. and Marissa Tomei. Bye!